open your Bibles to the book of Acts in chapter 13. Interesting transitional passage here in the book of Acts. I want to spend a little time developing this. It starts with four words, now in the church. What church? Now when? Uh, and, and for that, I want to just recap a little bit from chapter 11. I'm not going to give a bunch of commentary on it. But chapter 12 is really kind of parenthetical. It's, it's sort of a parentheses on what's going on because, you know, when King Agrippa came, uh, he, when he rose up and had James executed and was intending to execute Peter, we looked at all of that last week. Uh, and as a, a result of a famine in the world that uh, the church at Antioch had sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with an offering. Uh, so as this church in Antioch, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning, was, was being planted and developed, I, I want to get some background. There's great background from about the middle of chapter 11 to near the end of it. Like I said, just going to read it. So in chapter 11, verse 19, <clears throat> we read, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, we'll look at that more this morning, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but to Jews only. Now Antioch here, there are a couple of Antiochs. There's one that we'll look at next week is called Antioch and Pisidia, which is actually on the mainland. Uh, north, it would be in modern day Turkey, but it, it would be uh, to the northwest of Israel. Antioch in Syria was near the ocean. It was about 16 miles inland, but about 300 miles due north of Jerusalem, uh, right on the, the, the Mediterranean, but well, just off of the Mediterranean Sea. The Antioch in Syria is what we're talking about here when we look at the church in Antioch. Now, Antioch was the third, at this time, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. This is not a town. <laughs> this is a big city. And so what was happening is the persecution that broke out after Stephen was martyred uh, was significant. People were fleeing. They were leaving the area because of political pressure and religious pressure from the Jews. Uh, interesting how people leave the area when there's political pressure. At any rate, <laughs> so the, the people were leaving and part of where they went was up to Antioch because it was a big city and they could find work there and perhaps they knew people and all of that. So that's the background here as we get into this. So uh, the people, are they're relocating. It says some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Now Cyprus, which we'll look at this morning, was an island in the Mediterranean. It's the third largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's also the one that's closest to Israel. It's off the coast of, again, modern-day Syria and Lebanon and all of that, north of Israel, uh, a large island. So uh, in Cyrene is modern-day Libya. Uh, so they were coming from Cyprus. They were coming from Cyrene in northern Africa. Uh, and it says that who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, and those were Greek-oriented Jews, they were Hellenistic, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great number believed and turned to the Lord. So there is a revival that gets sparked in Antioch. 
uh, because of these people who are immigrating there from different parts of the empire. Verse 22 in chapter 11, and then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Uh, We'll look at Barnabas in a little bit, do a little bit of a character sketch on him. He ends up uh, being partnered with the Apostle Paul uh, and is greatly used of God. So verse 23, and when he had come and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with the purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So here this this outpouring of the Holy Spirit continues in Antioch. The church is, for lack of a better term, exploding at this point. Uh, God is touching people's lives, touching people's hearts, Jew and Gentile alike uh, at this point. In verse 25 says, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. So Barnabas travels again to, we'll look at some maps. I've got uh, some maps and a little laser pointer I brought. Uh, I usually use that to tease the cat. But we'll look at some maps in a little bit, and we'll look at some of these areas geographically. It's important that we understand that these are real places. And so, you know, yeah, I'm going to get into a little bit of a geography lesson so that you can understand that these are places that are referenced, and you'll see the significance of these areas. So uh, Barnabas goes up to seek Saul, who had had this Damascus Road experience probably 14 years before now. Uh, and he is up in Tarsus, which is his home region. He, he lived in Tarsus. He was born and raised and called Tarsus of Cilicia. Cilicia is a Roman province. So Barnabas goes up to seek Paul out. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So now Barnabas and Saul are in, in the city of Antioch. So it, was, so it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's interesting. Followers of Christ. Verse 27 of chapter 11, in, in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now Caligula had passed off the scene and Claudius was now the emperor. Claudius, by the way, would later order a persecution of Christians in Rome. He would have the the citizens of Rome that were Christians ejected. Uh, He would kick them out. So verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Note the order there too. It's Barnabas and Saul because Barnabas has been a prominent part of this church in Antioch, and we'll see that that gets switched up as we go through the text this morning. So uh, skipping through chapter 12 with Agrippa and Herod Agrippa and and his uh, persecution of the church, executing James as we looked at, and then wants to execute Peter, but Peter gets jailbroken by, remember we looked at (laughs) the honorary angel, Uh, Last week, he he shows up in Peter's cell and he literally punches him in the side and says, get up, get dressed, get your sandals on and get out of here. Uh, In no uncertain terms. 
And Peter does. And he goes to the, the house of um, Mary, who's uh, actually Barnabas's aunt. We're told in Colossians 4 that her son, John Mark, and he's going to play a prominent role in this, that he was there at the house. And so here's John Mark, Barnabas's cousin, and his mother, Mary, they're at her house. And that's where Peter has the interaction with the people. He's knocking at the gate. He gets broken out of jail, but he can't break into a prayer meeting. And so he goes through all of that. Uh, and then we, we finished up last week with Agrippa uh, deciding that he wanted to be honored as God. And that God took issue with that. And uh, the angel struck him with a mortal blow there in Caesarea Maritima on the coast. He left Jerusalem embarrassed <laughs> and uh, says that he was eaten with worms and died. So uh, I just think that's just a great word picture. So at the end of chapter 12, it says, The word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, this is the same Mark that they were at his mother's house. And, and we can assume that Saul and Barnabas were there because they had brought the offering. Now, they're not mentioned in chapter 12, but they're mentioned in chapter 11 as heading for Jerusalem. They're mentioned at the end of chapter 12 as heading back to Antioch. So they were in town. Uh, and I, I just imagine the things that they were soaking up as they hung out with the disciples as they're doing these all-night prayer vigils for the people who were locked up being executed, Peter being actually on execution watch as, uh, as they had gathered to pray. So in verse 1, that's where we see now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, who had been brought up uh, with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we see here in verse 2, it's, or verse 1, that these guys, that there's prophets and teachers. Now, a little bit interchangeable on those particular offices in the church. Uh, it's interesting because prophets were ones that were, they were specifically gifted by the Holy Spirit to receive revelation directly from God and to preach it to others. Uh, not the same as Old Testament prophets. I want to make that clear. Uh, Hebrews 1 tells us that, uh, it, that in times past, God spoke through the prophets to the fathers in many portions, in many ways, but now has spoken to us in his son. In other words, that part of prophecy is complete. There's no new revelation. The canon, the scripture is complete. So not in the sense of new stuff, but you've got to realize the New Testament was essentially being lived out by these people. And it would be written down here by Luke and by the apostle Paul after he transitions from Saul to Paul, and we'll see that transition today. But so it's important to understand and to remember that the Holy Spirit is behind all of this. Now, he is working in the hearts of individual people to accomplish the corporate stuff that's going on in the church. And so he's using prophets and he's using teachers. Now, teachers 
they were the ones that God uh, gave through the Holy Spirit the ability to expound or to explain the word of God uh, to the people. Uh, it would, it would, and to give explanation of the scripture in a simple and understandable manner. Now, what they used, their Bible at that time was the Old Testament. Uh, like I said, the New Testament hadn't been written. And so Paul, and whenever you see in his travels from here through the end of the book of Acts, he and Barnabas, when they got into town, they would go straight to the synagogue. Why? Well, there were Jews there that they wanted to convert. True. But now we're looking at a Gentile church. Well, uh, <laughs> there were people that... Um, were part of these congregations that had not converted to Judaism, but that they were very interested in the things of God. And so they were reaching them. They were reaching Gentiles, uh, Gentile Jews or Jewish Gentiles. Uh, but the, there was a whole group of people that they could reach. Now they had a head start because if they had people that understood the premise of the word of God, then they could expound on that. And so that's what they do, and that's what we'll see them doing as they go through this morning. Now, in verse 1, he talks about this whole list of guys. I want to I take a minute and do a little bit of background. Now, these guys are leaders in the Antioch church, all right? Uh, and he lists off five of them here. And there was probably more, like we, I said, the, the, the church was exploding at this time, and they were, I'm sure, raising up leaders. We saw Agabus was named as a prophet at the end of chapter 12. He's not named here, but we can assume that he was being used in that church as well. So Barnabas is an interesting guy. He was a Levite. In other words, that's the priestly tribe in Israel, okay? He was born in Cyprus, but he lived in Jerusalem, uh, and so he was, uh, he was an interesting guy. He was probably a wealthy guy. Uh, we're told in chapter four that he sold land that he owned in Cyprus because again, he, he lived, he was from Cyprus originally, lived in Jerusalem, but he probably bounced back and forth and that he took the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. Question that occurs to me is Barnabas was probably a little older than Saul. Is did he know Jesus? Had he personally seen Jesus? Had he personally seen him teach? Had he personally seen him minister the truth of God to the people? I don't know. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we can assume because he was on the scene at the same time that he probably did. Now we have another guy named Simeon who's called Niger. Now the word Niger is Latin for black. All right, and there are people that say, well, maybe it's because he had dark hair, or maybe he had dark eyes. But everybody in the Middle East has dark hair and dark eyes. I mean, <laughs> I don't think that flies. What it probably means is that he was a black man, and that uh, he was presumably a black African that had possibly. He, he, now, this is conjecture. This is interpretation, but he is very possibly the same guy that bore the cross of Christ, Simon the Cyrene. Now, uh, again, Cyrene is Libyan, northern Africa. The reason I say that is in Mark fifteen twenty one, 
Mark, who is with Saul and Barnabas on this trip, and he's with them, he went with them, came with them from Jerusalem, and he'll be going out when they go to Cyprus, is that Mark himself was the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and he names Simon the Cyrene's sons, Rufus and Alexander, by name. There in Mark chapter 15. How would he know that unless after Simon had bore the Lord's cross, he had gotten to know them? And so I think it's interesting that we have this guy, Simeon, or Simon, that's another way that that name is rendered, uh, who's called Niger. So again, we don't know, but if that's the case, how would you like to know the guy that carried the beam? Interesting, interesting guy. The next guy we see here is Lucius the Cyrene. Now, uh, there's not much known about him other than, again, he's from northern Africa. And then here's an interesting guy that's mentioned here in in verse 1, a guy by the name of Menaean. Now, it says he was brought up with Herod, that he grew up with Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, he's the guy that was responsible for executing John the Baptist. He was also the Herod that when they took Jesus for one of the six mock trials that he had before they executed Christ, before they crucified Christ, this is the same Herod that they took him before then. So this guy was not a guy that was friendly towards Christ or Christians. And yet, here's a guy, Menaean, who's brought up in the same house. Could have been a foster brother, a stepbrother. We don't know, but we know that he's from the same household. He's part of the same court, Herod's court, all right? Well-heeled, and and that he comes up in the same place. Again, very possibly had been exposed directly to the teachings of Jesus. So Herod goes off the deep end in, in an evil sense, and Manan gives his life to Christ. Fascinating. And then I like the way this list ends. It says, and Saul. (laughs) Like, oh yeah, lest I forget. Oh yeah, Saul. This guy, Saul. Yeah. Uh, Saul, we know, was an interesting guy. Persecutor, hater of the church, hater of Christians. Traveling around the empire, seeing what he could do to stop this movement called the way at that time. Uh, to stop the gospel from going forth. Uh, you, you probably know the story, if you hung out in biblical or church circles for long, that knocked off his horse, blinded on the road to Damascus one day, ends up having his name changed from Saul to Paul, which is what we see here today. So uh, interesting bunch of guys. Again, these are the guys that were the, the leaders at the church at Antioch. And it's no wonder to me that in verse 2, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So it says that they ministered to the Lord. What does that mean? You know, it's simply, it's doing what honors God. Uh, Worship, praise, prayer. Listening to God, I've I've been talking about that. We've been talking about prayer a lot uh, the last month or so. And we'll talk about it more today. 
that it's wonderful to give God our petitions. He wants those petitions. It's wonderful to intercede on behalf of another. He wants that. But folks, you got to have in your own personal time with the Lord, a time where you simply listen. These guys are listening to the Holy Spirit. They're saying, Lord, what do you want of this church? What do you want to do with this group of believers? And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll share with you, again, I'm not going to go into it, but coming back from being literally deathly ill myself and having God touch my heart, touch my body, <laughs> touch my heart literally, my prayer is, God, what do you want to do with this church? How do you want to touch our hearts? How do you want to take us deeper? It's, and absolutely, I will never depart from preaching the grace of God. And we sit and we stand solely by the grace of God. And there's work to do. I think that's very, very clear here. It's very, very clear that the mandate for the church is that we not get drawn so inward that we become a social club, but that we reach out and that we are in a posture of saying, Lord, what about me? How do you do that? You do it by ministering to the Lord, by doing what he has called us to do, which is when we come in here, that's why I exhorted you for with worship this morning, to come in with an attitude of worship. And it's not about not liking the music or liking the music. It's about, Lord, how can I express to you my love, my adoration? I, I, I'll never forget a church in Northern California where Stacy and I were, uh, we were having a prayer meeting right before service one day, and, and this uh, he's a lovely brother, a uh, guy by the name of Jim. Uh, and, and we were wrapping up and getting ready for worship, and he said, how come we don't do those old hymns? And, and I said, well, what do you mean, Jim? He goes, well, you know, and how come we have the music so loud? Or how come we this? And, and he just kind of went on a rant. And I just looked at this guy, and I said, Jim? We're not doing it for you. We're doing it for him. And we're inviting you to come along. And I watched, I'm telling you folks, I watched the Holy Spirit get a hold of this guy's heart in that moment. He came under conviction. And he just, he literally, he groaned. He's, oh. And, and he looked at me and he said, well, pastor, how come nobody's ever told me that before? And, and, I, and I just, I just loved him. And, and we continued to be, Dear friends, wonderful friends, until he went to be with the Lord. But that was a turning point for him in his own understanding of the difference between I'm going to be ministered to, and I want to have the posture like they're talking about here with the church at Antioch, where they're ministering to the Lord. They're going with, Lord, how can I express my love, my adoration, my devotion to you? And I think that's a wonderful model for the the church, for us as the church. So, They ministered the Lord. They fasted. Uh, Interesting, talking about fasting here and also uh, in verse 3. And uh, the goal of fasting simply uh, is to draw nearer to God. Now, I want to be careful on this because fasting is not mandated in the New Testament, the New Covenant. It's not something that we have to do. Is something that is it a biblical principle? Absolutely, absolutely. And the best way I can describe it is like: uh, Have you ever been blindfolded and, and and try to find your way around, or in such a dark place that you you can't you don't know what you're doing? 
um, the first thing that happens, at least for me, is my hearing gets more acute. And, and what happens is I begin to rely on my other senses because I don't have the sense of sight functioning at that moment. Well, fasting in a spiritual sense is sort of like that. It's not exactly, but sort of like that. Because when you're depriving your body of food, your spiritual senses become heightened. And that's the point of it. Does that mean that we have to fast? No. Does that mean that it's not a good idea? I'm not saying that either. You got to understand, you got to know your own health. I mean, if you're a brittle diabetic, probably don't want to try that. But we're going to be partaking of a, a, a larger deal in January, a week of fasting and prayer that uh, I've been working with uh, another pastor on. Uh, and there, we'll have more information on that as we go. Again, not mandatory, but something that uh, through leanness in in that sense. And, and I think about it, I think in the Western culture that we live in, we call hungry when we're not full. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I'm hungry, honey. I'm not hungry. I'm just not full. So this is a little different. Uh, and, and we can go into that more, but I, I got to cover a lot of ground here this morning. So we'll just kind of suffice it with that. Now he says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. Now there are three points in, in the New Testament, at least, I mean, it counted three, I could probably find more, where Paul, the apostle, talks about being separated. In Galatians 1, I think it's 1.15, he says, I was separated from my mother's womb unto God. In Romans 1, he says, I was separated for the gospel. And here, says, separate Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. So uh, we see the separation at birth and at conversion and now with their calling. Now I want to explain too that there are times where, and I believe that, that there are times where God gives gifts. He gives gifts to all of us. Some of them come in a moment in time. I might He might give me a word of knowledge to where I have some understanding about something or a word of wisdom. I I know how to go about something. And those are things he gives in a moment. There are also gifts that he develops over time. All right. Now, the gift of teaching is a good example of that. That's a gift that he generally develops over time. Now, for the Apostle Paul here, named as Saul... It, this is at least 14 years after his Damascus Road experience. Uh, this, he didn't just step into the pulpit, guys. Uh, in about 33 or 34 AD, uh, he was converted. He had the Damascus Road experience. From 34 to about 37, spent three years in Arabia. Remember, he says... I was taught by the Lord himself. We don't know exactly how the Lord manifested to him, but we do know that in order to validate his apostleship, because an apostle was somebody that was taught by the Lord himself. And in Galatians, he talks about that. And he talks about, I am valid as an apostle. I was one born out of due time, (laughs) he refers to himself, uh, talking about his apostleship. He didn't come up with the other guys. 
but that didn't lessen the fact that God had called him to be an apostle. And that's about 34 to 37. He's in Arabia. Now, he returns to Damascus. <laughs> he immediately gets into trouble there. Uh, and he narrowly escapes the authorities. So every time this guy now, after he is beginning to come out of it, the, this training period, every time he opens his mouth, people are trying to kill him. <laughs> and so he gets into trouble in Damascus. And from there, he goes on up to Jerusalem in his first visit to Jerusalem in about the year 37. Uh, and he meets with Peter and James. He, he wants to know, are these things that I, that I understand about Christ and about the gospel, are these things that, am I hearing this right? He wants to get validation and they do validate him. They say, yeah, you, you're spot on, um, Saul. And so, and so then he goes from there. He, he gets, again, he gets into trouble, uh, and he escapes to his home region of Cilicia. This is where Barnabas finds him. And so from 37 to about 46, uh, he's preaching in his home region. Not a lot written about that. But here we are about, and this is about 46 or 47, when Saul finds Barnabas uh, in Tarsus and he brings him to Antioch. And there they spend another year preaching and teaching the people. Great many people being taught is what we're told as we looked at. And that brings us to the present time. So like I said, minimum, minimum of 14 years, perhaps as much as 17 years after he had come to the Lord, after he had committed his life to Christ, he's now being called. This represents a huge shift and what's going on in the early church. Up until this time, it has been primarily about Jerusalem and the Jews and Peter. Remember, when Jesus, he was there with his guys right before he ascended, he said, I'm commissioning you. He gives them the great commission to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria have now been reached. Antioch is the launching point for the uttermost parts. And what's happening in this moment, as we're looking here in chapter 13, is the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, we're going to start to branch out. We're going to start to reach out. Separate unto me Paul or Saul or Barnabas and Saul. So that's the background here. Now, when he says separate, that's an interesting term uh, <laughs> because all of us, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. If you belong to Christ, if you have given your life to Christ, if you are a disciple of Christ, we talked about what it is, the difference between a disciple and a, and a pupil last week. Disciples more of a, uh, apprentice, a pupils, like some of this is in a classroom. Eh, Christianity ain't about the classroom, guys. It's about being a disciple. If you are a disciple of his, you have been set apart. Your life has been set apart. For what? For him. For his use. For his good pleasure. For his gifts to manifest. The gifts of the Holy Spirit to manifest in your life. For you to serve. I spoke 
when I first came back from my sabbatical, my so-called sabbatical, <laughs> I spoke about the, what it is and the points of emphasis that the Lord showed me laying in a hospital bed that, that we're to be surrendered to him. We're to be submitted to him, to his will. And we're to serve him. All of those are functions of being set apart. So it's not just about Saul and Barnabas here. It's about you and I. Verse 3, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now, I want to make a correction that's kind of a lousy translation. They sent them away. They didn't send them away. They released them. And the, the word sent, they sent them away. Sent them away in the original language is the word released. So they said, all right, God is doing something here. God is doing some sending. And that's backed up in verse 4. Because in verse 4 it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So God is doing the sending. The church is doing the releasing. Right? And I know that might sound nitpicky, but it's important. It's an important distinction to make. Because, and we'll see this with John Mark, Paul, or Saul and Barnabas, they're sent. Now, John Mark goes with them, but it doesn't say anything about him being sent. So there's, there's being sent, those who are sent, and then there are those who went. <laughs> and there's a difference. Because John Mark gets partway into this and he bails on them. Talk about that next week. That's the text that we'll look at next week. But my point is, is that when God is in it, he does the sending. The church does the releasing. Uh, many times pastors would go to, to Pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith, and, and they would sit in his office and say, well, I think God's telling me that I need to go do this or plant a church here or go do that there. And Chuck would say, well, if that's what you think God is doing, then... You need to go do it. Well, what do you think? Uh, it's not so fast. He wouldn't. He would not tell guys. He'd say, "Look, if I tell you, yeah, you go do it, and it's me doing the sending, then when? Not if. When it gets tough, when it gets really difficult, you're going to bail. But if you're confident that God has done the sending, that the Holy Spirit has done the sending, that's a whole different deal." And you're going to be able to bear up when things get tough. I call being a pastor the toughest thing you'll ever love. And, 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 I, and I mean that sincerely. I mean, I love you guys. and I love doing what God is doing. And Stacy and I are very confident in the call that God has on my life. He confirmed that while I was laying in the hospital. Uh, as I mentioned to you guys before, I started, I was praying, saying, Lord, do you want me to retire? You want me to just get out of this and go do something else? I mean, I've got job skills. And coming out of the haze that I was in, it was like, no, I'm sending you back. There's work to do. So that's the distinction there. So verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. Now, there was no fanfare doesn't tell us that the church made a big thermometer and they said as soon as we raise the money the thermometer gets to the top then we'll be able to do this. They just simply said, okay, this is what God's doing. We're going to do it. And the first thing that, that Barnabas and Saul did is they walked about 16 miles because that's how far it was from Antioch to the seaport of Seleucia on the Mediterranean Sea. So it says that they, they go there. There's, again, no fanfare <laughs> no big hubbub. 
And um, so they head down there. Uh, and verse 5, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. Now, Salamis is on the island of Cyprus. It's on the east coast of Cyprus. Uh, Doug, do you have that map? Yeah. All right. So here's Jerusalem right here. This is Antioch. All right. Now, the island of Cyprus here, Salamis is here. All right. So they sail. They go from Antioch to Seleucia, to the, to the coast, and then they sail to Salamis. Now, they're going to go as far as Paphos. That's as far as we'll get today, uh, which is on the west coast, the southwest coast of Cyprus. And then next week, we'll see where they head up into, again, Asia Minor, and they go to this area here. Now, we'll blow that up, all right? So this is the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Notice towards the left that there are seven cities that have yellow dots on them. Just as a point of reference, we're not going to go there today, but when you read the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and 4, it talks about letters to the seven churches. Those are the seven churches. And right off the coast there to the left is the island of Patmos, where the apostle John later on, this is much later, uh, where he would be in exile on that island when he was given the apocalypsis, the revelation, the apocalypse and those letters to the seven churches. So just so again, so that you have a point of orientation, that these are real places, they're not just Bible towns, Bible words and all of that. This stuff really happened, and it really happened in real places with real people. So that's the point of the geography lesson, so that you can locate in your mind, at least, uh, these places geographically. What you also notice in verse 5, so that they went into the synagogues of the Jews. Now, not synagogue here in Salamis, but synagogues. Why would that be? Because, folks, there were a lot of synagogues in these places. There was a heavy Jewish population, formerly Jewish population, now growing Christian population on Cyprus, And so they would hop from synagogue to synagogue, from town to town. And when they got into town, again, and you'll see this throughout the rest of the book of Acts, when Paul is on his journeys, he shows up in town, and the first thing he does is go to the synagogue and begin to expound upon the word of God to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ that was spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. So just an important thing to to hang on to as we go. Um, says they had John as their assistant. Now this again, this is John Mark. Uh, they, they took him along. They took him from Jerusalem and then they took him again. Uh, Barnabas' cousin, probably a lot younger than Barnabas, but his cousin, his relative nonetheless. And so in verse six, it says that when they had gone through the island uh, to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus, the word bar in, in Hebrew is son of. Okay, when, remember they brought Barabbas out when Jesus was on trial and they said, who do you want, Jesus or Barabbas? That's, 
Bar, son of, and Abba is father, son of the father. That's what, what his name translates to. Uh, or Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. That's how Peter's referred to in the Gospels as well. So this guy's name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. And, and who knows how he got that name. Jesus was a fairly popular, fairly common name in the first century. However, very interesting that that's the name that's used for this guy because his name is actually Elimus, and that's what we see here further on. So it says that he's a sorcerer, a sorcerer, 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 and a false prophet. He's also Jewish. So interesting. What would he be doing there? It says in verse 7, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, and this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So the scene here is they get to Paphos, which is the capital of that Roman province. They get to the proconsul, which in the, pro, the, the procurators were appointed by the emperor, Proconsuls were appointed by the Roman Senate. So this is a Roman senatorial colony, Cyprus is. So they go right to the head of the government in Paphos. This guy wants to hear. He hears what's going on with these two in the synagogues, and he wants to hear for himself. You know, tell me about this Christ that you're speaking of. Well, very often in the ancient world... And you see different examples, like with Nebuchadnezzar's court and even in the court of Pharaoh back in, in Joseph's day, these guys would have spiritual advisors. And they were guys uh, that, whether they were genuine or they were phonies, frauds, uh, was a whole different deal. But they were guys that were part of the, the, the government court. And they would give spiritual advice, and in this case, really bad spiritual advice, to the governor. Well, so this guy, that's what this guy, that's what his job is, is to give advice to Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is an interesting guy. Now, in, in secular history, there's some things written about him, uh, some records that were found in ancient Rome. Uh, that he says that he was an intelligent man. He was a prudent man. He was actually a brilliant engineer. And we don't know if it was before he went to uh, Paphos on, on Cyprus or after, but the emperor, what was happening back in Rome was the Tiber River, which is the river that flows through and feeds Rome. The Tiber River was flooding all the time and it was flooding parts of the city. The emperor commissioned four engineers to go to go back to Rome, and they built a complex series of canals and waterways to bleed off the floodwaters so that the people wouldn't get flooded all the time. And this guy, Sergius Paulus, was one of them. So interesting background. Uh, it's interesting to me that Luke calls him an intelligent man, uh, and evidently he sure was. So he calls for Barnabas and Saul. He wants to hear the word of God. And in verse 8 says, But Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, this guy feels threatened. 
He's been the head, the top dog when it comes to spiritual matters with Sergius Paulus. Now, these other guys, this, this Barnabas and Saul, these two guys come into town and they're gaining popularity. They're gaining momentum by going into the synagogues and, and talking about uh, the, the word of God and, and all of that. And Sergius Paulus said, you know, I want to hear what's going on with these guys. Well, Elimus, uh, the sorcerer, he gets threatened. He gets jealous. He says, you know, these guys are threatening. They're, they're on my turf. And so he gets up, he gets his back up, and he tries to turn Sergius Paulus away from them. And this is interesting. Verse 9, then Saul, who is called Paul, this is the first time that he's called Paul. Then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? So here, now I want to explain, Saul was his Jewish name, his Hebrew name. That's a common name. The first king in Israel was King Saul. Paul was his Roman name. Uh, Paul means little. And uh, some say that's because Paul was a little guy, that he was short. I don't know. It may be because Paul referred to himself as the least of all the saints. Uh, And it's maybe nothing more than that's the name his parents gave him at birth. Remember, he's got dual citizenship. He is a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. And up until now, he's been referred to as Saul because he's been running in Jewish circles. Now he's beginning to run in Gentile circles, and he does this flip to now he's Paul. You're going to also notice here that instead of it being Barnabas and Saul, that Paul steps to the forefront. And he will remain at the forefront. He remains at the forefront to this day as far as the volume of work that he did uh, we continue to read about and we continue to, to look at uh, the, and be fascinated by this man. Now it goes to to Paul and Barnabas because Paul will assume a leadership role. This is a pivot point. This is where he's sort of coming into his own. And the first encounter he has with this guy Sergius Paulus is where he comes out as the apostle Paul. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks at, the, he gazes at this guy. And the only other place where I see this word used is remember when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven and that he starts to levitate off the ground. It says the, the, that his men were looking intently at him. That's this. They were, they were fixed. Their eyes were fixed on him. They, were, they couldn't, you, you use the term, I couldn't take my eyes off that person. Well, that's what Paul is doing here now uh, with Elimus, this, this fraud, this sorcerer. Uh, he fixes his eyes on him and he says, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. And I think that's an interesting play on words because, again, his name is Bar-Jesus, son of <laughs> Jesus. And, and, and Paul says, Oh, no, you don't. You're not son of Jesus. You're the son of the devil. And he makes that real clear. And he essentially lets him know, you're full of deceit and fraud. You're fooling this man uh, with your trickery. 
You're an enemy of all righteousness. Then he says, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Now the word perverting there, again, there's a a clearer translation. The word perverting means making crooked. Wonderful play on words there. He says, will you not, why don't you stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Fascinating. He says, and now he pronounces judgment on him in verse 11. He says, and now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now, remember last week we looked at Agrippa, says the hand of Agrippa was stretched out. It's the power of, that Agrippa had. He didn't personally show up to have James executed. He didn't personally show up to get Peter arrested. But it was certainly his power because he had ordered it to be so. Paul is using, again, this is an idiom. It's, it, it's, it's a part, it's a figure of speech. When he says the hand of the Lord uh, is upon you, he's saying the power and the presence of God is coming into play here. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Think about it. Uh, it, it's not doesn't it's not lost on me that Paul calls for this guy to be blinded. I, I think about him. I don't think he ever forgot that road to Damascus. I don't think he ever forgot that moment when he realized, "Oh my goodness, I've been I've been going down the wrong road. I've been blind, and now I'm blind." It's interesting. Elimus is spiritually blind. And God's judgment on him is that he will be physically blinded. Difference between these two men is Saul repented. We know that, that he, he went on to Damascus. He was there, uh, and, and that his life bore fruit for God from there forward all the way up until he was executed in Rome many years later. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened with Elimus. It just said that he went around looking for people to help him out because all of a sudden this guy that professed to have all of this power, had none. Lost his eyesight. It says in verse 12, the proconsul believed, and when he saw it, uh, what had been done, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Again, I think it's fascinating. It says he's greatly astounded. He's beside it. He is so blown away, to use our vernacular, at what Paul does. What's interesting to me is that God, by the Holy Spirit, takes this thing, this guy who is there to carry out evil, fraudulent acts with Elimus or with um, Sergius Paulus, and God uses him to draw this guy to Christ. Because it's through the miracle of Paul pronouncing judgment on this guy, a dark mist falling on him, him being totally blind, I can't see. Sergius Paulus is watching this whole thing and he's going, this must be real. It reminds me, folks, of Genesis chapter 50 where Joseph, remember, Joseph, his brothers had left him in a hole. And and the, the slavers came, the caravan came and took him off to Egypt into slavery. And years and years and years later, after Joseph had risen to prominence in Egypt, because he had shown the Egyptians how to store grain for the coming famine and all that. And when the famine came, guess who headed for Egypt? His brothers. 
They don't recognize him at first, but then he reveals himself. And there, I love the, the, the way the text reads there, because uh, it's such a wonderful example of a dysfunctional family. And, and, and his brothers are saying, well, before dad died, he told us to tell you not to hurt us. And I just think, yeah, okay, right. But Joseph's answer to them, I think, is remarkable. And it reminds me of what's going on here between Elimus and Sergius Paulus. He says, look, you meant it for evil against me when you dumped me in that hole. And you took my coat back, smeared with blood, and showed it to dad. But God worked it for good. God took that thing that was meant for evil and he worked it for good. God is taking this man who was was working evil, this fraudulent, false prophet, and when Paul calls him out on it, pronounces God's judgment on him, God takes that, and this guy, Sergius Paulus, is looking on, and he's like, this has got to be real. I mean, look at it, he's blind. He's, he's, He's fumbling around trying to find the door. Remarkable, remarkable. That's as far as we're going to go this morning, but I want to wrap up with three questions. Challenging. Last week we talked about fervent prayer. Talked about what does a fervent prayer life look like? If you were here with us, uh, what we were talking about is that what it doesn't look like is you've got the pros. You, you're, you're polished with your prayers. It's not, no. We looked at, remember when Peter was in jail and they were getting ready to execute him, probably lop off his head like they did James. The people were praying there at Mary's house. And when Peter showed up at the gate, they were shocked. They're thinking, you're supposed to be like on the firing line. What are you doing here? You know, kind of a thing. But the fact is they were praying. They were praying fervently. They were praying intently. They were praying with purpose and and. They were motivated. That's what a fervent prayer looks like. You don't have to have the words down. You don't even have to really truly believe that God's going to answer your prayers. And I know that might sound shocking sitting here in church. But how many times have you prayed and you've thought, well, I don't know if God's going to pull this one off or not. Let's be honest, guys. I'm that guy that Jesus spoke of. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Because sometimes, and yeah, we're to pray believing. Don't get me wrong. But the degree to which I believe is not what God is looking for. He's looking for me to be faithful and to pray. Leave the results to him because it's about who he is, not about who I am and how effective or how polished or any of that other stuff. That's all true. But the first question I have here, again, connected to that, is where are you at with regard to a lifestyle of prayer? And optionally, a lifestyle of fasting. Uh, And... To be transparent with you, <laughs> I was trying to think of the last time I fasted. And I think that that's a really important thing. And my wife and I will be talking about that going forward. Uh, yeah, you gotta be, you gotta be wise about it. Personally fasting, it should, pre- it should present a, a, a level of challenge. But it's really important to know, uh, your body, to know your options, uh, most importantly, to seek God in prayer and follow the Spirit's leading. But where are you at with regard to a lifestyle of prayer? Is it your lifestyle? I'll tell you what, I love that time of prayer that my wife has set aside every day. And part of what we pray for in that time of prayer is that we have time set aside personally, individually for prayer. 
to wait on the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to say, Father, I just love you. I, I, I give my heart afresh to you. Please speak to me. Please instruct me. Please convict me in areas where I need your conviction. So it's not just praying, going through the motions of prayer, but it's really, it's, it's ministering to the Lord in prayer. Second thing, how's it going down there below the decks? Now, that, I'm going to explain this. In verse 5, we looked at Mark came as an assistant, right? Okay, the Greek word for assistant here is huperides. And what it is, it's the word for an under rower. Do you know what an under rower was in the first century? Have you ever seen, you know, like the old Roman movies where the ships are out there on the sea and they've got a whole line of oars coming out this side and a whole line of oars coming out that side? That's because there's a whole line of guys on each side below the decks manning the oars. That's how they propelled their boats. <laughs> didn't have, they had sails. But if the wind was slack, guess what? <laughs> the rowers are going to be doing it. And they were called under rowers because they were a deck below. Guess what? They weren't seen. They were doing the hard work. They were absolutely reliant upon one another to row in unison. There had to be order. And they had to row at the command of the captain. What's indicated here when John Mark went with them was that he was an under rower. He was doing the hard work. Is that why he leaves? We'll look at next week. I don't know. Luke is very gracious about Mark. We know he leaves. We know later on that Barnabas wants to bring him back. And Paul says, (laughs) not on your life. We're not going to do that. Ain't going to do that. I'm going to go down that road again. He proved to not be too reliable. But the point is, is that word that's used is a word that often comes into play in our lives. I know people that serve in this church that will never be recognized, that will never have their name on the bulletin. We don't have a bulletin yet, but (laughs) we might bring that back one of these days. Most people are doing stuff online. But there's no honor outwardly. And being an under rower. But you know what Jesus says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Don't practice your righteousness in front of men to be noticed by them. Do your alms, good deeds, in secret. Essentially he's saying, be an under rower. Now, I want to caution on something. Does that mean that there's a hierarchy here? There's Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas. And then there's, oh yeah, there's John Mark, the... <laughs> the, the, the guy below the decks. No, it's not talking about a hierarchy because the Apostle Paul uses this very same term for himself. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, let uh, a man so consider us as servants of Christ, as under rowers of Christ, talking about his own ministry, and stewards, house managers of the mysteries of God. So what's the point in all this, Pastor John? The point is, is your heart to humbly serve the Lord, regardless of what it is he wants you to do. Talked about, again, that whole emphasis to be surrendered, submitted, and to serve. I don't know what that looks like in your life. I know what it looks like in mine. 
I want to be obedient to God's word and do as it says and to make my calling and election sure. I want to serve him with my life. Those are good questions to take to the Lord. Lord, is there something for me to do? And if that's to be an under rower, there is (laughs) no shame in that. Uh, I've shared with you guys before. Uh, they're on the floor of an Episcopal church that we traded use of their children, their facility for our children's ministry for cleaning the, the place up. And, and they're on my hands and knees all by myself in this Episcopal sanctuary, scrubbing the floor because it was better, it was easier to get the spots off doing it instead of using a mop. And God's speaking to my heart and, and, and saying, John, I am as pleased in this as I am Billy Graham filling football stadiums. I was blown away and I began to weep because that's the God that we serve. That's what it is to be an under rower. That's what it is to say, here am I, send me. What does that look like? I have no idea what it looks like in your life. I know what it looks like in mine. The last question, are you confident in facing opposition. We see here that, that and we looked a bit at Paul's history to this point. Every time the guy walks into town, people are trying to kill him. They're trying to, or they're running him out. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of lists that he talks about uh, the things that he's endured for the sake of, of serving God. Uh, wonderful list, but hard list. This guy went through it. Expect opposition. I know Thanksgiving's coming and, you know, Aunt Millie might not like that you asked her if she knows the Lord yet. But there's a point where we're willing to, to risk. Saul and Barnabas were willing to risk. It was far more important to them to see people step into the kingdom of God than to leave them comfortably in their sin. What about us? As I mentioned, I don't want our church to be so inwardly focused that we're not focusing on reaching out. Be willing to risk and trust God that when opposite, not if, but when opposition comes, that's part of the package. With a single act, God dealt with both Elimus and the proconsul. He judged the Elimus and he saved the proconsul with Paul simply being obedient to step up, look this guy in the eye and say, look, let me tell you what's going on here. You fraud. I'm not saying you get up in somebody's face on Thanksgiving and call him a fraud either. <laughs> well, Pastor John said, no, but what I am saying is that when opposition, not if opposition comes, but when up, because people love darkness and it's a darkening world out there and the darker it gets, the brighter our light shines. Be willing to risk and be willing to trust God that he'll use the opposition for his glory. Let's pray. Father, there's just so much here in the book of Acts. I just, I want to keep going, but these people need to get going too. So I pray, Father, that you would take these things that we've looked at this morning, that you would work them into the fabric of our lives. Lord, as we see the example that's put forth by the church releasing these men and them simply being obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading to go out and now beginning what would be multiple missionary journeys, we see great amounts of fruit because they're simply willing to go. 
And Lord, whether we're, we're willing to go or we're willing to be used right where we're at is according to your good pleasure, according to your will for our lives. And I think, Lord, the, the question really, the greater question is, are we willing? And Lord, in those areas where, where I haven't been willing, I pray that you would give me the, the heart to be willing. I pray that for each one of my brothers and sisters here. Whatever that looks like, Lord, I pray you would impress it upon our hearts that we would be a people committed to serving you, a people committed to following the leading of your Holy Spirit. So we give ourselves afresh to you, Father. We pray that you would work in us, work through us. As there's just, it's just so messed up out there. We pray, Father, that you would have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.